Hello, I am Sam Amon, and this is the 12th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing the role of hunter strikes during the Irish War for Independence. Before we begin our discussion on the Hunter Strikes, we want to begin with our Making History segment. This is a 5-15 to 15 minute segment in which I highlight ways you can help make history. First, we want to acknowledge the tragedy that occurred in Lebanon last week and that we stand with the protesters. We also stand with Belarus, Hong Kong, the Uyghur, the LGBTQ community in Poland, the Black Lives Movements in the United States, and all other peoples fighting for their independence. We've created a section on our website dedicated to highlighting opportunities to help, and we'll be updating it frequently. Some of the organizations in Lebanon that you can donate to are the Animals Lebanon, Sawa for Development and Aid, the Migrant Community Center, and Disaster Relief for Beirut Explosion. In the U.S., right now, the ask from Black Lives Matters in Chicago is to continue to pressure our mayor and aldermen to pass CPAC, the Communities Police Accountability Council, which will give the people the power over the police. Please also take a look at the Movement for Black Lives website. They've revamped it recently, providing more information on the upcoming Black Convention on August 28th, the Breathe Act, and they've provided a guide of weekly actions you can take. Finally, if you are in the U.S., you will know that our post office is being dismantled, jeopardizing our right to vote, the lives of those who rely on the post office for their medication, and small businesses. Please plan to vote as soon as possible. And don't wait until November 3rd. In Chicago, early voting starts October 19th. Fill out your ballot as soon as you get it and put it in the mail or take it to a secure drop box at one of the early voting locations. Also consider volunteering as a poll worker, as they are short poll workers this year and they we need everybody on deck to make sure that this election goes as smoothly as it can. After you've done all of that, call your representatives, especially if they are a Republican senator, every hour of every day and demand they protect the USPS. Finally, call the USPS Board of Governors and demand they fire the current Postmaster General. We will provide their contact information in the description. Now, let's turn our attention to hunger strikes. Hunter strikes are fascinating because they are counterintuitive on every level. The idea, in its simplest form, is to starve yourself to break your opponent and to highlight the gravest immorality of your opponent. It's similar to self-immolation, which we may talk about in a very, very future episode. Hunter striking is a familiar weapon in the war against colonial policies and wrongful imprisonment. Although today is associated primarily with Gandhi and the IRA, such as Bobby Sands, it is an old tactic practiced all over the world and by all genders such as the revolutionaries in Imperial Russia, suffragettes in Britain and the U.S., and men kept in Guantanamo or in the U.S.'s concentration camps, American-Mexican border. The tactic of voluntarily giving up food until a political demand is won originated with the Russian revolutionaries in the 1890s. It is a versatile weapon that requires utmost dedication from the striker while placing all the moral and legal responsibility on the oppressor and highlighting the wretched conditions that enables a striker to go on hunger strike in the first place. The British in particular often made hunter striking worse with their inept attempts to force-feed their prisoners. Thomas Ashe is a famous example of someone dying from being force-fed, and their inability to prevent martyrdom from being granted to all who went on hunter strike in Ireland. 
The ultimate power of hunter striking is that it asks the revolting and uncomfortable question, can this government be just if it allows its prisoners to die in a slow and excruciating manner, often for nothing more than a matter of principle or legal technicality? Even the government's attempts to force-feed a prisoner feeds into this narrative because it acknowledges that the government cannot let the prisoner die, but instead of finding another solution, it will keep the prisoner alive on the most minimum of diets, only prolonging the agonizing inevitable outcome. Hunter striking in Ireland started in 1912 with the suffragettes' fight for the right to vote. Hannah Shahi Steffington and seven other women broke 50 window panes in Dublin governmental buildings to protest John Redmond's refusal to include to include women's suffragette in the third Home Rule Bill. They were arrested and sent to Mountjoy Prison, where they requested to be treated as political prisoners instead of criminal prisoners. Instead, the British granted women differential treatment, sidestepping the need to acknowledge the existence of political crimes. While Hannah was in jail, other suffragettes protested Asquith's visit to Dublin by throwing a hatchet at his car and setting fire to curtains in a theater Asquith was supposed to speak at. The three women were arrested, and in total, six women went on hunger strike. Gladys Evans, Mary, Lay, Mary Lee, Jenny Baines, Hannah Sahi Steffington, who would go on hunger strike again in 1918, Marguerite Palmer, and Margaret Murphy. The Irish women weren't force-fed, but the British women were, until they were released due to fragile health. From 1912 to 1914, the British officials avoided force feeding, often giving in to Irish demands as the practice of hunderstrites traveled north into Ulster. The suffragists claimed hunderstrites as a feminine tactic and challenged men to meet their dedication. Many would. The men of the Irish volunteers first experimented with hunderstrites during their imprisonment in Frondosh, following Easter Rising. No one died, and the hunter strikers did not yet gain the legendary status that others like Tom Ashwood, but they were able to use it to improve conditions in the prisons and protect Irish volunteers from being conscripted into the British Army. World War One was still going on at this point. After they were released, hunter strikes did not become a common weapon in the IRA's arsenal until the famous death of Thomas Ashe. We've talked about this briefly in episode 3, but Ash's death wasn't only an energizing moment for the IRA itself, it was a history-altering moment when the IRA first truly used death by hunger strike to justify their cause. Thomas Ash was born to a family steeped in Gaelic culture, a proficient footballer and Gaelic speaker. He started off as a teacher before being swept into the Gaelic League and later the IRB and the Irish Volunteers. He was commander of the Fingal Brigade and along with Richard Mulcahy, spent most of Easter Rising terrorizing the Dublin countryside. You can learn about their activities on our 10th episode, Richard Mulcahy and the Easter Rising. After the Irish Volunteers uh, surrendered, Ash was sent to Lewes Prison. When he was released, he was considered to be a rising revolutionary star. After Easter Rising, he became the new president of the IRB and went on a speaking tour over, all over Ireland, campaigning for candidates like De Valera and Joe McGuinness. He was arrested in charge of se uh, sedition in August 1917, after he was arrested, Thomas Ashe denied he was a criminal, demanding that he be tried as a political prisoner, sending the prison's deputy governor a list of 11 demands. If the demands were not met, 40 men would go on hunger strike starting October 1st. To show that they meant business, Ashe and other prisoners broke the items in their jail cells and caused so much havoc, policemen stormed their cells and beat them and took everything away, forcing them to sleep on boards on the floor. Ashe, Austin Stats and 39 others went on hunger strike on September 20th, 1917. The prison authorities began force-feeding them on September 22nd. Force-feeding involves tying a prisoner down and inserting a, a large pipe down their throat 
and then pouring soft foods and liquids down the throat. It is incredibly painful and terrifying for the Hunter Striker, downright deadly if the prison warden doesn't know what they're doing, which from what I can tell, they usually don't. An inexperienced doctor force-fed Thomas Ash, but inserted the pipe wrong, so it filled his lungs instead of his stomach. Ash died on September 25, 1917, from complications from force-feeding. The IRA turned his funeral into a master stroke of propaganda. Organized by Richard Mulcahy and members of the IRB, it became a massive Sinn Féin and IRB demonstration, condemning the brutality of the British, but also illustrating that the Irish volunteers had not been broken by Easter Rising. Instead, they were like a phoenix, rising from the ashes stronger and more organized. Mulcahy led a small group of men into City Hall to collect ashes casket and carry it to Glasnevin Cemetery. It is said they were followed by 200 Catholic priests, 9,000 Irish volunteers, 8,000 members of the Women Workers' Union, hundreds of members of Tom Nabom, Dublin's Lord Mayor, Lawrence O'Neill, Archbishop of Dublin, Dr. William Walsh, and that altogether 30,000 to 40,000 people marched in the procession. A three-valley salute was fired, followed by the last post. Collins gave the speech at Ash's funeral, saying, There will be no oration, nothing remains to be said, for the volley which has been fired is the only speech proper to make above the grave of a dead Fenian. Poems and ballads were written in Ash's honor. His photo became a totem, almost like a picture of a saint. His own poem, Let Me Carry Your Cross for Ireland, Lord, was also published, a stirring cry for Ireland that combined the IRA's cause with a Christ-like martyrdom. The poem itself is a perfect encapsulation of how the Irish approach Hunderstrikes and what makes them so unique when compared to the Hunderstrikes in India or in modern day. The IRA were a majority Catholic organization and understood their own struggle within a very Catholic narrative. Whereas one may have expected hunter-strikers to be shunned by the Catholic Church because they were in effect committing very slow and painful suicide, the IRA, with help from the Catholic Church in Ireland, were able to reshape the narrative, invoking Christ's sacrifice to explain why it was okay for young IRA men and women to jeopardize their lives for Ireland. It was a similar line of argument Pierce himself would use to justify Easter Rising. So in some ways, it's just a continuation of the Irish volunteers' revolutionary philosophy. But in others, Ash made it unique, because he didn't die in a flash of glory. He died in great pain, alone in a prison cell, very similar to how Christ died. While that framing may sound overdramatic or even dangerous to a modern ear, it galvanized the Irish cause and shocked the British. They gave into the demands of Ash's fellow hunter strikers in what became known as the September Rules. Another hunter strike occurred in Dundalk Prison, and they were released in November. During the first three months of 1918, 130 hunter strikes would occur. Some would last only a few days, and some included women, such as Hannah Shahi Steffington, ending in her release. The British were overwhelmed and didn't have a coherent response, so they would eventually release all strikers, including Terence McSweeney, who went on his first hunter strike in November. The number of hunter strikes would reach a slump by mid-1918, but were re revived in early 1920. This seems to be a response to the increased violence of the Irish War of Independence, as well as a sheer number of men in prison. The hunter strike started small in Wormwood Scrubs and Mountjoy during the early spring of 1920. According to Tevin Grant's book, Last Weapons, by April 12th, a total of 155 men in Mountjoy had gone on hunter strike. The prison was surrounded by an infantry company and two tanks, and they, in turn, were surrounded by thousands of the strikers' supporters. On April 12th, a general strike was called in solidarity with the prisoners. Two days later, a prison doctor reported that 66 men were in immediate danger. The British blinked first and released all prisoners. 
The British replaced the castle leadership with harsher men and brought in the auxiliaries and the black and tans. They turned to reprisals and assassinations, believing they could quickly cow the Irish population and also to salvage the quote-unquote honor they lost during the last hunger strike. They had already shown too much weakness. Maybe the most famous man to go on hunger strike during the Irish War of Independence, Terence McSweeney, was born in court to an Irish father and an English mother. He earned a BA from the University of Ireland and became a teacher. He loved Gaelic culture and attracted to and was attracted to Irish drama and literature. He wrote his own book, Principles of Freedom, which outlined his Republican political aspirations, and he founded the Cork branch of Sinn Fein. Mitsweeney missed Easterizing because of the confusion created by the Midneal Counter Order. Even though Mitsweeney would receive Pierce's order that the rising was still on, he would refuse to partake, believing the attempt was doomed to failure since they had lost the element of surprise. He would always regret this decision. Even though he missed Easter Rising, he was arrested all the same and sent to Reading and Wakefield Jail. He was released in 1916, but was arrested again in 1917 and went on a three-day hunger strike before being released. He became the leader of the IRA's first Cork Brigade and elected to the Dáil as representative of Cork. He became Lord Mayor of Cork after his predecessor, friend, and fellow commander Thomas McCurtain was assassinated by British forces. He was arrested in August at Cork City Hall for possessing seditious material. He promptly joined a hunger strike to protest the authority of the British courts. Given his importance, the British transferred him from Cork to Brixton Prison in London. They also declared that none of the strikers were going to be released. Like Ash, Terence McSweeney saw hunger striking as a Christ-like form of sacrifice. During his first speech as Lord Mayor, he said, The liberty for which we strive today is a sacred thing, inseparably intertwined with the spiritual liberty for which the Savior of Man died and which is the foundation of all just government. He also once said that it is not those who can inflict the most, but those who can suffer the most, who will conquer. The British may have thought they were men of steel, but Mitsuini was determined to break the British government before they broke him. The IRA played up his strike, his sister Mary Mitsuini reading the Bible to him and Thomas Tempest's imitation of Christ, and on his 38th day without food, he published a press release stating that he and his men had been striking for 40 days, the same length as Christ's fast in the desert. Obviously, this resonated deeply with the Irish people, who began to see a struggle as a spiritual quest shared by the entire Irish nation. Again, we see this potentially dangerous combination of violent protest with religious zeal and fervor, started by Ash and carried even further by Mitsweeney. Mitsweeney survived for 74 days without food, before finally dying on October 25, 1920. Eleven men had gone on hunger strike with him. Michael Fitzgerald had died on October 17, eight days before Mitsweeney and another man, Joseph Murphy, died in Cork after 76 days on hunger strike. The remaining nine remained on hunger strike until Arthur Griffith interceded in November. A mass uprising did not follow Mitsweeney's death, and the hunger strikes died down, seemingly confirming the British's approach. But in the long run, Mitsweeney became a powerful martyr and symbol for the Irish cause. In the U.S., De Valera was the principal speaker at a Mitsweeney demonstration, claiming that Mitsweeney was but a type of millions whom the British had failed to crush. He had not gone through the ordeal alone, and thousands of others were willing to follow if by their death the conscience of the free nations of the world would be awakened. Mary Mitsweeney, his sister, would follow his example during the Civil War, winning her own renown, but she would be released before making the ultimate sacrifice. The free Irish state government had learned from the British. They could not afford the death of another Mitsweeney, let alone Terence's very sister. Mitsweeney's body was taken from London to Holyhead and was supposed to go to Dublin, but the British did not want to allow the IRA to create another mass demonstration for a hunter striker in Dublin like they did for Ash. So instead, he t they took the body 
straight from Hollyhead to Cork. A large group of people, including Mary McSweeney, had gathered at Hollyhead to take the coffin from the British authorities, but they failed, and rumors spread of the British kidnapping McSweeney's body. He finally arrived in Cork and was greeted by thousands of mourners. He was buried at St. Mary's Cathedral and thousands of demonstrations were held throughout Ireland. McSweeney's procession was led by 180 priests and followed by tens of thousands of citizens. A last salute was fired and Arthur Griffith gave the oration, saying that Joan of Arc would find a martyr in the Lord Mayor and a worthy comrade in heaven. Todd Andrews, who went on hunger strike in Mount Joy in 1918, once said that going on hunger strike was a forced decision because of the pressure from his fellow rebels and the heightened situation in Ireland leaving little room for any other choice. And yet there was also the acknowledgement that this strategy was too costly for the IRA. Rosamund Jacob wrote when hearing about Matsweeney's death, I can hardly think of anything braver that was ever done, but I'm not sure about the rightness of Hunderstrites always. It is said that Collins actively tried to dissuade the use of Hunderstrites because it wasted good manpower. And even the British, while proclaiming victory when Matsweeney died and nothing happened, were slowly realizing that the propaganda costs of letting hunter strikers die were getting, was getting too high, and yet they felt they couldn't follow any other course. To do so would be to acknowledge that their hold over Ireland was broken, and if that was true, what was their point in continuing the war? Hunter striking is a double-edged sword, costing the participants as much as their opponents. In Ireland, it worked because it melded in with the predominantly Catholic culture, as well as the chaos and brutality of World War I and post-World War I world. One to not ignore the dehumanization that had occurred during World War I, and be naive to think that Ireland was spared uh, this development. The Mountjoy hunter strike of 1918, as well as McSweeney's death, aligned with the increased violence in Ireland as well. With assassinations, disappearances, raids, and other such brutalities occurring regularly within Irish society, is it surprising that hunter strikes were accepted as just another part of the war? Additionally, we must acknowledge that hunter striking was just one tool against the British prison system. Arrested IRA men led strikes, riot, protests within the prison. They broke things, they started the tradition of going on the blanket and refusing to wash themselves in addition to going on hunger strike. The idea was to make British rule as unbearable as possible, and that made the prisons as much of a battlefield as the court countryside or the streets of Dublin. While the British government as a whole was perfectly content with letting Irishmen die while in prison, we must investigate the effect this had on the prison wardens. I do not know if a study has been done on the wardens in charge of prisoners who were going on hunger strike but I imagine that the strikes must have taken a severe toll on the wardens as it did on the prisoners who were not striking themselves but had to watch their comrades waste away. And that in itself may also be considered a psychological victory on the strikers' part. What makes the Irish situation unique is that hunter striking was just another method of warfare. I think when we looked at the suffragettes and even when we looked at India, that was considered part of a non-violent approach to civil right, to gaining civil rights. In Ireland, it was acknowledged as a violent approach and it was acknowledged as a tool of war. And that those who died while on hunger strike were martyrs, but also soldiers. And that's why you see this really interesting development when women start hunger striking. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more during our Civil War episode, because there will also be a Civil War hunger striking episode. You see this really interesting narrative where some Irishmen are annoyed with the women for doing on hunger strike. Because they think that it's taking away from the masculinity of it. Even though hunger striking originally started with the women suffragists. And as we talked with Mary McOlaf in our last episode, even in the Irish Civil War, some women did not want to go on hunger strike at the same time as men were doing a hunger strike because they didn't want to take away from the men's efforts or the men's story. So like everything um, in Ireland, there's also this gender divide as well. We don't see that as much during the Irish War of Independence because the British just never realized until it was too late how important women were to the Irish movement. Um, we'll see that a lot in our Civil War episodes. Hunter Strike is an extreme tool and an extreme weapon. 
and it requires almost fanatical dedication. And I think the part of what makes it so interesting is that it is so counterintuitive to everything that we know and understand. And I think that's also what makes it extremely fascinating because at least in Ireland, it wasn't, you know, one or two people going on hunger strike. It became something that you knew you had to do when you were arrested. As Todd Andrews says, there was this pressure that you couldn't feel like you could say no, even if you didn't necessarily believe that it was an effective form of protest. And the other thing, too, that this will lead us to is is an interesting discussion about the prison system during the Irish War for Independence. And we'll have a couple of art blog posts about the prison system, um, as well as maybe another episode or two about it. So thank you for joining us. You can find our episodes on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Follow us on Twitter at AOASIMWarfare and on Instagram. You can also sign up for our newsletter so you'll be the first to know when we update a new episode or a blog post. If you enjoy our content, please consider donating to our Ko-fi. It can help us buy a better microphone, buy an actual recording booth so we have better sound, um, help pay for research, and things of that nature. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.